0: Thank you. Welcome back for another day of obscurity. Um, and uh, um,
1: We're going to do a mainstream <laughs> topic sometime soon, or just obscurity?
0: Oh, this is, this is everything I do is obscurity. I mean, really, this is, well, you, <clears throat> you can't be anything but obscure in the letters of St. John or the letter of the Hebrews. I mean, they're obscure, but the gospel's not so obscure today, I don't think. All right, let us pray, and then we'll jump headfirst into the pool of obscurity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come holy spirit fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love send forth your spirit they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth lord you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the holy spirit by that same spirit may we have right judgment in all things and evermore rejoice in his comfort through christ our lord hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the... Oh, Father, what well, we got you on the line, Lord, please bless Father... I, Father, uh, I I don't want to mess up the name, but the priest who was burned to death by... by uh, terrorists in Nigeria and that poor priest who was shot in his attempt to escape the burning building so Lord bless them and and reward them for their bravery um, and also please help uh, Father Michael in Africa who's been kidnapped in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit amen it, it's we live interesting in quite the times what I was what? just going to say Why? father this is live that you know people have yeah. said that there's been more martyrs in the 20th century than there have in the history of the church. I think the 21st century uh, is is stacking up quite quite favorably to the 20th in terms of martyrs, and I really do believe it, it. It it because not because of the theological and liturgical screwiness in which we are living, but because of the martyrs. I think history, uh, unless the Lord comes soon, history will look back on this as one of the great ages of the Church. How and what's going to develop, God alone knows. But I think that that. Um, I think we should have that perspective. Well, all right. Let us let us move on to the big book on the coffee table. Well, I want to go to the gospel first because it's much more—it's much less obscure, believe it or not. Uh, It's obscure, but much less obscure. This is Mark, the third chapter, the first verse to the sixth verse. Jesus entered the synagogue, and there was a man who had a withered hand. In other words, he he had a stroke. They watched Jesus closely to see if he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This is what Orthodox Judaism to this day believes, that you cannot heal someone on the Sabbath. That is the work of a doctor. You can always save a life, a human life or even the life of of a domestic animal. You can always save a life. I mean, the rabbis rightly abhorred uh, cruelty to animals. Uh, and, and so they, they, that's uh, why the, the Jesus in his discussions with the Pharisees uh, talks about won't you lose your, your ox or your donkey from a pit if it falls in So on the Sabbath. So that's, that's just an aside, but healing was the work of a doctor. So if you found someone bleeding to death in the gutter, you could tie up his wounds so that he would not die. And I suppose you could give medicine if it was an infection so virulent that it might kill a person. But short of saving life, you could not heal someone on the Sabbath, be it spiritually or physically. So that's the deal. Jesus had a reputation for healing, and that was work. So Jesus says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath rather than to do evil, to save life rather than to destroy it? They remained silent, looking around at them with anger. Isn't that interesting? He was angry at them. Uh, uh, that, that's a strong thing. Uh, you know, this good and gentle Jesus, he never got mad at anyone. Oh, he was, he was angry. Well, he said to this man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out the hand, and it was immediately restored. Um, now, St. Augustine, not St. Augustine, St. Jerome talks about this, This incident, and he has a backstory in which the man turns out to have been a stonemason. This is St. Jerome, and he got this from the gospel that was read by the, 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 the Nazarene sect and the Ebionite sect, who were Jewish Christian sects. Uh, in the centuries shortly after Christ, and they read things like the Gospel to the Hebrews, things that were not canonical, but still had sometimes interesting information. And St. Jerome says that from those Gospels, he has learned that uh, this was a stonemason, and this had taken his livelihood, and he had to go about begging for his bread. Uh, um, uh, So Jesus was restoring his life. Jesus was saving his life, but but he, he uh, um, uh, saw more deeply than the Pharisees did. And the word isn't really anger. I should take it back because the word is, is um, uh, he was very grieved. Uh, he was very grieved. That's a little different, you know. He wasn't angry. He was just deeply saddened by the reaction of the, um, the Sadducees. Uh, let me let me look at this. Oh no 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 no! I'm wrong. <laughs> I am wrong. He was angry, but it wasn't that kind of hoarse snorting anger. It's uh, it's um, uh, it can actually mean the word can actually mean vengeance, anger, wrath, passion uh it it means uh uh to to be constitutionally opposed this is not just uh, uh, uh a rage this is something that comes from a settled opposition in other words he was opposed um strongly opposed passionately opposed to their um uh, to their position. So, well, let's go back to the, I, I. I know that's kind of obscure, but uh, the 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 other anger <coughs> that we talked about the other day, that's embrao my. That really means to become furious. This is not fury. This is this is reasoned uh, anger. And he was grieved by their their hardness of heart. Uh, the word is is well. It means to make be made sad. Uh, so he's at once angry with them and he is compassionate with them. He's saddened, not by the, the, the I think it's, I think that's an important thing to look at. Let, let's do it. Let's, let's look a little more, more deeply at that passage. If I can get back, I want to just look at each little word and looking about at them, having looked at them with this passionate opposition. He was grieved on their hardness of heart Uh, um, and that, that word uh, um, uh, is porosis from which we get actually the word osteoporosis. It's, it's callousness, blindness, uh, um, hardness. Uh, it was, it was their heart. They had hearts of marble. Uh, it, it comes from a word poros, which is a kind of marble. Uh, so they had hearts of stone. And that's a very big biblical idea. So he, but their hearts of stone—that's not what angered them. Uh, it grieved him uh, that they had embraced a ridiculous position. It angered him. So uh, I hope that's not too too much. Now the Pharisees went out and immediately took counsel with the Herodians against him to put him to death. I have often said that it was not the Pharisees that executed Jesus. Well, they wanted to put him to death. These Pharisees did. There were other Pharisees who warned him. Um, once uh, he was uh, warned by the Pharisees that Herod was trying to get him, and Jesus said, tell Herod that fox that it's impossible for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem. But the Pharisees, there were Pharisees who were interested in what he had to say there were Pharisees who were not. The Herodians, no one is quite sure who the Herodians were. But they, I suspect, were a party who was in line with the government. And these were people who, if Jesus did something uh, that would destroy the peace of the kingdom and the relationship to the Romans and all that sort of thing, well, Herod would be interested in that. That's why the Herodians are are interested in, in finding out whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar. So, but the heart of this is that Jesus saw more deeply than they did. They had defined the law of God in such a way that it excluded, it excluded kindness to this, this man. Now, this is a dangerous thing for me to say because you can get the idea that somehow you are superior to the law. We were in the sixties and early seventies in the seminary. One of our favorite words was epicaia. It it meant to jump over uh, a difficulty. And the idea was that if you knew the intent of the lawgiver, you could uh, uh, follow the intent rather than the exact rule. Well, we knew the intent of the lawgiver because we were the uh, the dawning of the age of the Aquarius and we interpreted laws the way we wanted to. And so there's a danger there. But understand that... that, uh, what Jesus says to these Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or, or evil on the Sabbath? Well, you know, I don't want to violate the Sabbath. I got a flat tire. Can't you help me? Yeah, you can help them on the Sabbath. That's an act of kindness on the Sabbath. Um, all right, moving along. Uh, let's go back to that first reading. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham. I, we're still on this Melchizedek bit. Gee, the, the, the author of the letter of the Hebrews is trying hard to... To prove that that uh, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron, and um, that's what this passage is about. Now, I don't think you can understand um, this this part of the letter to the Hebrews without really understanding um, the uh, the position of Mel who Melchizedek was. Melchizedek. Was a very mystical figure. Uh, the Hebrew sages, uh, um, well, his name means King of Righteousness. Melech is King and tzaddik is Righteousness, so he's the King of Righteousness. And the many of the the, the sages believed he was Shem, the son of of Noah. If you calculate all of the the, the dates and the genealogies and the ages, well. Maybe he was he went all the way back to the flood, and uh, others said no, he was the nephew of Noah who was born of a virgin. And miraculous, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, the second book of Enoch, uh, which is a Jewish work from the first century, uh, says that Melchizedek was born of a virgin, uh, who was the brother of Noah. The child, uh, uh was born posthumously, and he was born essentially fully grown clothed and and blessing the lord and he was marked with the badge of priesthood and so melchizedek was taken by an angel to the garden of eden so he didn't suffer in the deluge where they get this stuff i don't know but this is a this is a belief from the time of christ see enoch is a very misty figure but that's why the 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 letter says um uh that he's without father mother or ancestry without beginning of days or end of life in fact is some some actually compare him uh to a divine being uh so he is in in that thought a type of christ this is melchizedek was this mystical person so uh, i think that that's important for us to understand um so uh, he is incontrovertibly the first person in the scriptures to whom the word priest is applied. Uh, the word for priest is Kohen and, and priest is Kahuna. I think it's Kahuna, not the Hawaiian word, but he is the first priest. So I, I think that that's a very important idea that, that he is the very prototype of priesthood. Uh, and, um, you know, the, 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 the Jewish sages work very hard to say that uh, that, that, um, that Abraham handed on the priesthood of Melchizedek, that Melchizedek gave his priesthood to Abraham, who passed it on to his descendants. That's how they solve it. But uh, the early Christian author said, no, the priesthood of Melchizedek uh, uh, um, being like a uh, son of, well, let me look at the, the Qumran scrolls, which are always fun. Uh, the Melchizedek is identified with the Archangel Michael and uh, um, the, uh, the, this interpretation uh, that we hear in the Qumran scrolls certainly was contemporary with uh, the Christian scriptures and the letter of the Hebrews. Uh, and I, uh, this this idea of the king of righteousness is the letter of the Hebrews is saying something that's also said in the Qumran schools. But very interestingly, um, this is an eternal priesthood uh, that he's made like unto the Son of God, and he abides as a priest continually. So I think that that's kind of uh, interesting, that he's the king of righteousness, and he is compared to the... Uh, eternal son of God. Thus he's made to resemble the son of God. He remains a priest forever. This is tough stuff for us, but it's all about trying to prove to the people who are receiving this letter that, that Melchizedek is, is not just nobody, that he's not just some guy, but that he's of uh, an actual um, type or, or prophetic uh, forerunner of Jesus, who is more than some guy. He's the son of God. So, um, Uh, this is the hardest thing to prove is the divinity of, of Jesus, uh, from Torah. You can, you can point out, you got a priest king in Melchizedek. Uh, you've got Abraham believed that he would receive Isaac back. So you've got resurrection in the Torah. If father Abraham believed it, it's in the Torah. But this idea of a human and divine Messiah, well, the author has tied, uh, uh, Jesus into Melchizedek's priesthood. But then he points out that Melchizedek uh, was without beginning of days or end of life. They didn't know where he was from. And the fact that Jesus is a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, means that he's more than human. Not that Melchizedek was necessarily more than human, but he was a prophetic indicator in the Torah of this this. This human and divine being, I know that that might not uh, float any of the boats uh, that are not Talmudically inclined, and it might anger people who are Talmudically inclined. But you see the the the, the what's the word? The intense thinking that is going into this idea that Jesus was more and this is this this is something we can use instead of just refreshing obscurity that Jesus was and is more than we expect and this is true for all of us that Jesus is always more than we expect um, you know we cannot uh, encapsulate the divinity and the humanity of Christ and the love of God that we have in Christ it is always more than we expect and the author of the, letter of the Hebrews is saying the Messiah is was more than you were expecting he's priest king human and divine crucified and resurrected beautiful stuff i think once you once you once you get through the the obscurity all right speaking of obscurity let's take a break 888-914-9149 you can call me and ask any question you may have though i I prefer easy ones, frankly. 888-914-9149. And we'll be back with some letters. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about the Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash U Dallas.
1: Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be open.
0: Ask well, there you go, a good old hippie
1: song.
0: Oh boy, a come a trickling down. down. <laughs> oh, Seek was I ever young? No, I don't think so. All right, I got a letter. Let's go. Let's go to letters. Got to have the letter trumpet. I got a letter from Father Mike, and uh, he says, I can't help but poke the bear. This is about show yesterday. Today, you were commenting, and part of your comment was if, if that was the case, then Jesus didn't know his Bible. Uh, okay. Uh, that, that um, uh, It was a very interesting point that he makes, I think we need to understand that point, too, uh, that... that um, this was uh, about the priest in the days of, or, or when Abiathar was high priest. The translation says, and that's not what the translation, what the text says. It says in the days of Abiathar, which means in the days before Zadok. It the transition from the high priesthood of Abiathar to the high priest of Zadok, I think, was probably a pivotal point in the history of Judaism, that the the this, the high priest from the time of King David on, and from King Solomon on was to be a descendant of Zadok. Uh, Abiathar had lost the priesthood, so I have heard scholars say this proves that Jesus. Um, this couldn't have been Jesus saying this because Jesus would have known that that uh, this this happened before Abiathar uh, was strictly speaking was high priest. It's just obscurity, more obscurity, and it, it's it's. So I said. They claim that Jesus didn't know his Bible very well. But Father Mike makes the point. There really wasn't a Bible then. There were scrolls, different scrolls of varying degrees of sanctity. And if you go into a synagogue today, you will see the same thing. They don't have a Bible. They have what they call the Ark, the Aron, and in it are scrolls. And you've got what they call the big Megillah, because Megillah is the word for scroll. Uh, it means something rolled, magil, uh, magilla. It, it has nothing to do with that ridiculous cartoon. But the big magilla was the Torah. It had it was the the big scroll. But then you had the other scrolls. Essentially, you had three. Uh, th- well, you had the, the, the Torah, and then you had the prophets and the writings. And these were called the Tanakh, uh, Torah, Nabayim, Ikuthavim. Uh, they were different texts. But I think it's very important for us to understand that the idea of a Bible, you know, all these different books, which we Catholics claim there are seventy, all these books were never put into one book together until, well, the Pope did it in 350 A.D. the the, the uh, Vaticanus text of uh, of the Bible, and then there, the at the same time the the Byzantine emperors were doing it in the codex. Um, uh, I can't think of the word Constantinople, whatever. But the Codex Vaticanus, I believe, was the very first Bible as Bible. But understand that the putting of all these books into one into one volume—well, that's not recent, but it—it's it, not it doesn't go back to the time of Jesus. So this idea of scrolls. All right, well, I thank you, Father Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're absolutely right well let's go to the rest of these letters um i got a letter here uh, uh about um well this is from ron i converted to catholicism a couple of years ago is it allowed to attend a protestant church service with friends and family if i do not take communion uh, yes uh, it is it is permissible uh, you wouldn't want to make it a regular thing i don't think but but and it doesn't substitute for for the Sunday obligation. You know, if you're visiting family and they say, would you come to church with us tomorrow? I I think that that is permissible. Go to the vigil mass on Saturday night to fulfill your Sunday obligation. And then uh, you're right. You don't take communion because, you know, to take communion in a Protestant church or for a Protestant uh, to take communion in a Catholic church is dishonest. What we believe about Holy Communion, they genuinely don't believe. Well, I believe it's the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, but I'm the body and blood of Christ, too. And the Pope in Rome is the body and blood of Christ. We believe that the, the, the body of Christ has two meanings. It is the, the, the blessed sacrament that we receive at Mass, but it's also the mystical body of Christ throughout time and history. To accept, to, to take communion... To take the Holy Eucharist at a Catholic mass is to say, I am united to the Catholic, the universal church throughout time and space. And unless you are, you really shouldn't be taking it. And the opposite is true. If a Catholic takes communion at a Protestant church, it's saying, well, there's really no difference. And that's dishonest. I think true ecumenism, and we are in, in uh, I think it's Christian Unity Month, is um, True ecumenism comes from an honest, needs an honest admission of our differences. We are different. And personally, I think the big difference between Catholicism and Protestantism is the communion of saints. You know, well, what about the Blessed Mother and the Pope and the sacraments? Yeah, but it's the communion of saints because what we believe, we believe very strongly that what Jesus said is true, and that when he said, greater things than I have done, you will do. You see, we are genuinely the adopted sons and daughters of God. And, you know, this idea, the the five solas, somebody asked me about the five solas the other day. Sola sola Scriptura, Sola Gracia, Sola Fides, which means only Bible, only faith, uh, only grace. And the two others, only Jesus and the glory only to God. In other words, no, no, no praising the Blessed Mother. Um only Jesus, Jesus didn't say that. He, he wants us to love one another and to do in the world what he has done, not separate from him, but in union with him. And so this 2000 year, um, tradition, this unbroken uh, chain of history and literature and spiritual life, which is the communion of saints is, is at the heart of the church. And I, I don't just sort of Decide, oh, everybody's got it wrong about <laughs> the brain. It's always saying to me, so you're the first one in 2000 years who's thought this. And I say, yep, but no, that's not, that's not so. I mean, it is necessary for us to be in relationship, not only to Christ, but to the church universal. So I think that's important. That's why we don't take communion in one another's churches, because it's fundamentally dishonest. It may be a nice gesture, but it's a fundamental lie. We tell, we tell one another pleasant lies. The devil does that. Christ has always told me the unpleasant truth, even when I didn't want to hear it. So, um, uh, to to occasionally attend a non-Catholic service uh, is I do not. If you are well established in your faith, is not problematic. But to take communion would be very problematic. So I think you're you're on the right track, Ron. And if I'm wrong, if there's a moral theolo- a real moral theologian listening, and I'm wrong, please correct me. All right, let's go. All right, venial and mortal sins. (laughs) This is a good one. Could you give me examples of mortal and venial sin? Sure. You know, well, what's this mortal sin, venial sin business? It's in the first letter of John. There are sins which are unto the death. That the word mortal means unto the death. We get it from the first letter of St. John. So it's real Bible and it's a real tradition. Catholics have a problem, though. We tend to think of venial sin as, well, those are good sins. There is no such thing as a good sin. Every sin is an offense against the infinite majesty of God. A mortal sin cuts off our relationship to God. A venial sin does not. It hinders and even weakens our relationship to God and makes us more disposed sometimes to more serious sin. But a mortal sin is a thing that is objectively grave. The three big mortal sins in the early church were adultery, idolatry, and murder. And there are other mortal sins. For instance, to steal, we were always taught that to steal more than one day's salary from a person was a mortal sin. In other words, you make $200 a day and I steal $200 from you, I've committed a mortal sin because I've taken a day of your life. It's in essence murder. Uh, If I say something that that causes you great harm. That's essentially a violation, not simply the Eighth Command, but the Fifth Command, thou shalt not kill. I have killed part of your ability to make an income, your ability to relate to the people who love you. Uh, So so, uh, false witness and gossip can reach the level of mortal sin if they are done with the purpose of causing serious harm to another person. However, to commit a, a mortal sin, the matter must be grave. In other words, if you think that, that um uh I remember a person oh yeah, she was actually a relative. She went through a terrible case of scrupulosity when she was a girl. She remembered that rhyme step on a crack and you break your mother's back. She thought that if she willingly stepped on a crack, she was willing harm to her mother and thus it was a mortal sin. It wasn't. Stepping on a crack is not gravely wrong. But she she went through this horrible period in life where she actually was that scrupulous. She certainly got over it, thank God. So it must be objectively grave. You must know it's objectively grave. I didn't know that was a sin. Well, then it may have been mortally grave, but you did not commit the sin. You did not give yourself over to the sin, and you must be completely free uh, to To commit that sin. You must have a full turning of the will. In other words, you must; it must be a wrong thing. You must will to do it. And uh, uh, you must have full freedom. In other words, if someone has a gun to your head and says, do this, it's doubtful whether you could be committing a mortal sin. So uh, a venial sin would be uh, telling a little white lie. Uh, a venial sin would be You know, um, it might be taking home paper from work that you shouldn't. Uh, But you see, oh, so those aren't really bad. No, they're really bad. Uh, Every sin, as I said, is a is an offense against the infinite majesty of God. Some end our relationship to him to willfully kill someone, to willfully commit adultery, uh, to willfully steal a great amount of money. These and, and, and we do these things freely. Those are mortal sins. So I hope that helps, Patricia from McAllen. Um, Well, let's see. What time have I got? Oh, let me do another letter. Oh, this is really something. This is Nora from Baltimore. Um, who has a question about the Revelation? Uh, who are the hundred and forty-four thousand? Are other Catholics included there? The hundred and forty-four thousand. This is a symbolic number. Twelve is a number that applies the tribes of Israel. It can mean. It often means when you read in Scripture, it means government. Uh, it's a. You see, in they have something called gematria among the Jews, which is the symbolic meanings of numbers. So. Um, uh, uh, the, the the 12 is also a symbol of of totality uh um that that uh, it's perfect government the perfect number and uh, you see 4 is earthly perfection uh, and and 7 and, and 3 4 is earthly perfection and 3 is celestial perfection so 4 times 3 is is 12 and then you uh, multiply that by 12, you get 144, and you, you add a 1,000. So that's the idea. This perfect number of those who are subject to the institution of the kingdom of Israel uh, uh, will go to heaven. It isn't literally one. We don't believe it's literally 144,000. Uh, so um, uh, this is from the house of Israel. And then the passage goes on to say, uh, we read in... in uh, Uh, this is in chapter seven of the book of Revelation. Then we go on to see after this, I looked and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe and people standing before the throne, before the lamb. There are religious groups that say only 144,000 are going to get to heaven and it's us. Well, what do they do with this innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe and people? So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Frankly, Uh, um, Uh, Nora, that uh, um, these things have have gematria meanings and numerical value meanings. And to interpret them um, mathematically is is very inappropriate and impossible. Phew. Let's see. And and similarly, this is a related question. Uh, This is Dave from St. Paul in Minneapolis. In the Old Testament, people are really living really, really long lives. How are we supposed to interpret that? hi uh, the the um, uh, I remember when I was young there were these yogurt commercials um, that that you know, this guy was climbing trees at a hundred and sixty-nine years old in in some place in the middle of Asia, really, really Badistan or something, and and uh, uh, he was climbing trees and he attributed it all to yogurt. This was when they were trying to sell Americans on yogurt. When I was a kid, an American would have looked at yogurt and said, "Boy, that milk is spoiled." They decided to create a market, so the, the Dan and Company had these wonderful commercials about these athletic uh, old people in their 150s climbing trees in the middle of, of Asia. Well, somebody wanted went to research this and see what had happened to these old people eating yogurt, and none of them were ever 150 or 160, but they were, they were as if 160. In other words, they were so respected that they might as well have been 160, that's the idea that these, these law, maybe these people lived to 600 and 700 years old in the old Testament. I don't know. I wasn't there. However, what seems to be happening in the old Testament is that the lives get shorter and shorter and shorter as you get away from paradise. And the idea is again, numbers having a word value instead of a numerical value in Hebrew thinking that the, the, the condition of humanity is declining in virtue that's why they they aren't as noble as a 700-year-old they're only as noble as a 180-year-old kind of thing it was about a, 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 not about a numerical value but about a moral value added into the, the scriptures that was possibly the point of it then again maybe they were 700 years old i was never i wasn't there Okay, and speaking of not being there, I'm going to take a break and we're going to come back with a word of the day. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com forester. I'm moving on. moving on, moving on, moving on, Lord, I'm moving on down
1: that line. I know where I've been, and I can't stay
0: here, Lord, I'm moving on down that line. Oy, moving on down that line. All right. Well, let us go to a word of the day. I put the word of the day here. I oh here okay mail. Oh good grief. Oh no, that's not it. Hold on. I've got it here. I really do. Okay there. Oh good. I got oh, there. Good grief. I got a letter from an anonymous Catholic student asking me why do Catholics not follow the fasting guidelines from the Didache, which is very interesting. <laughs> the Didache uh, talks about. Uh, um, it says that. Uh, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, now, what's the word of the day part of this? Didache. It means teaching. The teaching of the 12 apostles. Don't let your fasting coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday. So you should fast on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> I think I, I get the biggest kick out of that. But people talk about the Didache, and, and it's it's not an inspired text. Uh, the Didache is. is uh, a fascinating thing and I recommend everyone read it but it it it, it, it may be older than some books of Scripture uh, um, I, I think there's some reputable scholars who put it that early uh, um, it, it, it may have been a reaction to certain things in the church as at least 50 AD but it it was not we knew about it the text was lost uh, some of the fathers of the church talked about it. Finally, a complete copy of it was found, I think a complete copy was found in 1873 in Istanbul, and that was written in 1056. So this text was lost for, for a thousand years. It's it's the teaching of the 12 apostles, but it isn't scripture. Uh, the reason that I bring this up is that, that um, I think it's very important to realize that People say, "Well, if we found an old gospel, should we put it in the scriptures?" No, the, the 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 early church knew about these things, and they said, "Yeah, that one. It's it's interesting. It's not inspired." So, just because something is ancient, doesn't mean it's inspired. Now, it's very interesting that we did fast on Wednesdays and Fridays until maybe the seven hundreds, um, and are are abstaining from meat that was obligatory until. Uh, the Vatican Council. Now it's it's um, it's made a big cutback. That that's the fasting on Friday, but we used to do it on Wednesday. Very interestingly, the the people are devoted to uh, Metochori. They do fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, and we seem to have a remnant of the Wednesday fast in Ash Wednesday. So in the early Church, Wednesday was a day of fasting because it was the day that Judas betrayed uh, Jesus when he went to the 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 the, um, the Sadducees and said I'll hand him over to you, and then Friday of course because Jesus was crucified. So Wednesday and Friday were, were days of fast in the early days, but we we abrogated them. We, we lessened them. Those were just disciplinary rules. They weren't biblical rules. And the the Didache is fascinating, but like so many early Christian texts, it's not inspired. All right. Well, that said, let's go to phones. <laughs> Let's go to Cindy from Minnesota. What can I do for you, Cindy?
1: Hi, I got a question for you. I was watching a commentary uh, last night, and the gentleman said that Jesus taught a very powerful um, uh, Scripture passage in Matthew Mm -hmm. 17, verse 21. But then he Mm -hmm. went on to say that after 1960, it was all deleted from the Bibles, mm-hmm. and he went on to list mm-hmm. how many Bibles. So, I opened up my my Jerusalem Bible, and lo and behold, the verse twenty one wasn't there. But so I was wondering, yes. okay, it's not there. But what did it say? Because if it's such a powerful weapon to fight Satan, I want to know. Uh, and so, well, um, and so, what's your your take?
0: Well, my take is that that it has to do with. Um, Well, the obscure field of (laughs) papyrology. In other words, uh, we are so accustomed to printing presses and now Xerox machines and now taking pictures with our cell phones. It is very easy to pass a document on unchanged. Before Gutenberg uh, in the late 1400s, it was almost impossible to do that. It's amazing how how good the texts of Scripture that we have are. However, you get a manuscript, and it's written by hand. That's what manuscript means, written by hand. And some old monk who is tired, and he's dozing off, and there it's cold, <laughs> and it's oil lamps, and he... Oh, where was I? Oh, and... Oh, the text said prayer and fasting, whereas the text only said prayer. You see, Jesus didn't pray when he cast out demons; he rebuked them. But he said, "No, the disciples are trying to rebuke the demons." He said, "No, some of you got to really pray." Well, a wonderful this is a theory I have, which may be pretty harebrained, but Martin Luther said that the just man shall walk by faith alone. And the word alone isn't in the text, but it's in a lot of non-Catholic Bibles. Uh, And someone asked Martin Luther, um, why did all of Christendom is wondering, why did Dr. Luther put uh, the word alone into the letter of the Romans? And Luther actually responded because tell them because Dr. Luther is the best doctor in Christendom and he would have it so. In other words, he was just being like me, kind of German. So, you know, you were saying you can always tell a German, you just can't tell us much. Well, where did Martin Luther get the, the idea of, of faith alone? Oh, I bet he got it from a hymn written by St. Thomas Aquinas. Oh, faith alone is enough to, to receive the Eucharist in the Tantum Ergo, Sola Fides is a phrase from a song written by... Um, Written by Thomas Aquinas. And when Luther translated his New Testament, I suspect that when he saw the just man shall walk by faith in his head, he said the just man shall walk by faith alone and he moved on. That happens when you're doing something by hand. And what happens then is if you have a bad text and some rich person wants to make 20 copies of the New Testament to give to his friends, that would be a, a just a, a regal gift. It would have been very expensive, and a king would have a, a copy of the Scriptures of the New Testament written to give to someone. And if you got your, if you copied it from a bad text, well, there were twenty versions more of the bad text. And how many, how many children would those bad texts go on to have? Whereas the right text, the older text, uh, um, well it wasn't copied by that King. And so it didn't get around. Are you following me in this? It all depends on the copy that manages to proliferate itself when something is written by hand. So scholars looking at the text, comparing all the texts we have found, the older texts only said with prayer. And we say, well, what's big deal about that? It was a big deal for the disciples because Jesus did not cast out demons with prayer. He cast them out with authority. But Jesus said, some of them you're really going to have to pray. Does this make sense to you?
1: Yes, it does. Yes, absolutely. Now,
0: back to fasting, though. The early church did pray and fast, especially in the exorcisms of baptism. There were, I think, was it six exorcisms performed when someone was about to be baptized in the early church, and the baptizer and the baptizee, And much of the congregation would fast. So that doesn't take us off the hook with fasting. It's the tradition of the church that we fast uh, when we when we pray to cast out demons. So we, we do pray and fast. And that guy was right about the power of fasting and prayer in spiritual warfare. But because of the Christian practice of prayer and fasting, that and fasting probably worked its way into scripture. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yes. And um, you just answered to that that's what verse 21, 17, verse 21 says. And being my mm-hmm. Bible didn't have it. I'm, I'm like wondering, what did it say? I need to know. And so you just Yeah, well, answered it, that it probably,
0: yeah, the original text probably just said prayer, but they added and fasting because it was the practice of the church. And it just slipped in there, just like faith alone. I remember I was discussing with a a wonderful young man who's off in Evangelical Seminary. He said, yeah, saved by faith alone. I said, you know, Scripture only mentions that once. He said, oh? said, yeah, it says, so it's clear, brothers, in the letter of James, you're not saved by faith alone. And he said, well, what that really means, he had to go through all these gymnastics to explain his theological position. But you see, the... Luther Luther stuck it in there, probably because he'd heard it in a hymn. That's my theory. I don't know if, if Father Luther, and of course he was a Catholic priest. I don't know if Father Luther did that or not, but I suspect. Well, all right, there you go. I hope it answers the question. It's complicated, but everything I say is pretty complicated. <laughs> Hi. Good Take luck with easy. that.
1: Thank you. <laughs> oh,
0: I dumb it down for me. Adam, are you with us? Adam from Warwick, Rhode Island. What can I do for you, Adam?
1: How you doing, sir?
0: What can I do? Yes. Um, All right. I married a
1: Catholic woman, and we have a Ah. child, and I'm Protestant, and uh, Mm -hmm. I just was wondering, uh, what is the theology, I guess, I don't know if that's the right word, behind um, baptizing babies?
0: Oh, uh, we believe by salvation by grace. I'm sorry? That baby, we believe in salvation by grace, we Catholics.
1: Oh, okay. So what is that, what exactly are you saying with that? So.
0: Well, what I'm saying is that kid can't do a darn thing about it. It's pure grace. In other words, All right. so, my, so. my being baptized has nothing to do with my decision for Christ. Now, we pray that we're saved by grace through faith. Your example and your wife's example will encourage this kid to know Christ so that when it's appropriate to him, he will accept that grace by faith. But the baptism is pure grace. We don't believe baptism is my decision for Christ. Baptism is Christ's decision for me. It's Christ's call to me. And it's a consecration of that child to the truth of the faith from the very beginning. Just as John the Baptist received Christ in in, in Saint, Saint Elizabeth's womb, uh, just as as uh, 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 the Scripture says, "From my mother's womb you knew me." That that baptism, we believe, baptism is the call of God in our lives. Uh, uh, then we we. To the degree that we are able, we accept Christ. Uh, so does that make sense to you? That, that's our position. It, Is that
1: it pretty does. clear? Because my father-in-law had told me that if he wasn't baptized, you know, at his baby age, that if something were to, you know, God forbid, happen to him, that he wouldn't be able to get into heaven.
0: Now, we don't believe that we don't believe that okay that that was an old kind of superstition um that that i would still recommend having the child baptized it certainly it certainly cannot hurt him but what we believe is that we're not sure that pope benedict may he rest in peace said you know that the catholic catechism says we are bound by the sacraments God is not. God can do what God wants to. I always say God has this problem. He thinks he's God. <laughs> and uh, you know he Pope Benedict said that we believe baptism is absolutely necessary in life, but God can work a way around it in his justice and his mercy. One of the theories is that that if a person is innocent and unbaptized and has not has not uh, chosen sin, uh, one theory is that they 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 go to heaven. They just don't have the vision of God. Another theory is that that at the uh, at some point, even after death, and we see an example of that in First Peter, I think the third chapter, where Jesus went and ministered to the souls in prison, who had who had lived at the time uh, before Noah. That that's an example of post mortem the post mortem offer of salvation in in the in the Bible, and what we. Pope Benedict said that in some way, God gives everyone the opportunity to choose Christ at some point in this world or in the world to come. The scripture talks about sins forgiven in the world to come. So we're counting on God's justice and God's mercy to make the offer. But why put it off? Why not start the work of salvation as soon as possible, which begins with baptism in life? Uh, baptism, we believe, is the doorway to the other sacraments, and these are gifts from God. So, I hope that helps a little. It does. Uh, what is your name, sir? I'm Father Rich Simon, <laughs> and Father my stage De- name is the Yes, my stage name is the Reverend Know It All, and my motto is "What I don't know, I can always make up." <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, humor. it's humor. I hope it's humor. But yeah, right. no, I, I would I would recommend you do him baptized because, looking at it kind of cynically what harm can it do on the other hand it may do great good and i believe it does do great good it, it just confers a beginning to that life of grace oh there's music speaking of the life of grace drew is coming up an honor to talk to you adam and congratulations on this wonderful child and if you ever have any questions don't hesitate to call and ask i love to answer them and well don't go anywhere because drew's coming up and he does the real thing he prays